Our Father, we give you thanks that it is through Christ that we are united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the church, the church of the living God, a community of believers. And Father, this is but a foretaste of what it will be one day when we stand in your presence and experience the church through the ages, joined together in one great body of worship, in worshiping you and in sharing what it is that you have done and, and relating the experiences of the thousands of years of history. Father, it will be an exciting time, and we're grateful for the opportunity we have to look back through the Word and to see what it is you have done and how you have touched lives and how you've manifested your character to the people of the past and to us through them. Lord, guide our thoughts this morning. Focus us as we look at the events described here in 1 Samuel. And Lord, as your word is proclaimed throughout this uh, property today, we ask that you will be magnified. And Lord, as we think in general about the word as it's being proclaimed on every continent of the world, we ask that today will be a day in which many uh, enter your kingdom and become a part of the bride of Christ. We thank you for your faithfulness and trust you Lord, to bind the evil one, that he will not be able to bring any hindrance or distraction from what you would do this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. If we might look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Then the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. As we look at this particular account, let me just again remind you, we are at Shiloh right here. The red lines here uh, on this particular map indicate approximately the territory that would be ruled by King Saul, which Samuel will anoint as the first king of Israel about 40, 50 years from the time we're talking about right now. You could say that the Israel that was worshiping at Shiloh roughly was in those boundaries, even though there was no official kingdom established at the time we are speaking. But the thing to remember is the concept, which will come up later in this, actually in the next chapter, of Dan to Beersheba as being the limits of Israel in, in the general sense of the word. That's not to say no Israelites live to the north or to the south. But that's roughly the parameters of Israel as it was developed at this particular time. So we're right about center here at Shiloh. And one of the events we'll be talking about as we get into the fourth chapter uh, occurs right over here near Aphek. Aphek's right here on the edge of the plain. And again, just because I will mention this as we go along, let me just again describe to you the profile here. You have the, the highlands that run right through here right next to the Jordan Valley, you have the highlands. And then the next region right in through here is called the Shephelah. And that's a region of kind of broad valleys and rolling hills. And then you move out into the coastal plain. All along here you have a coastal plain. You have Mount Carmel, which penetrates out here to shut off the southern coastal plain from the northern coastal plain. But nevertheless, 
it's mostly a flat area along here. It's a narrow plain, of course, so it's only about 10 miles wide, maybe 12 in places. And then, of course, you drop very rapidly into the Jordan Valley, rise very rapidly to the highlands on this side, which are actually higher than the highlands on that side. So that's kind of roughly the profile of the region. So we're right here in the highlands at the city of Shiloh, town of Shiloh, village of Shiloh, if you will, which exists today. If you go to Israel, there is a village called Shiloh. It's in the West Bank, of course, which puts it in a very unsettled region in Israel. Certainly Samuel was surprised to hear that the Lord was calling to him. When, when Eli said, go back, and, and when the voice comes again, uh, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. He was certainly uh, amazed that, oh, you mean the voice I heard was God's voice? I, I didn't realize that. And I think he wondered, but what could God possibly want with me? Why, why would God be calling me? I'm but a youth. I'm not even a, a full-fledged someone who was there and was teaching him and was the one to whom he went with his every need and every question. The message that the Lord gave to Samuel was very, very distressing because, of course, as we read this morning, it spoke of the tragedy that would come upon Eli and his family. The implication in verse 11 of this passage was that when the people heard what it was that God had done, that their ears would literally quiver, tingle, quiver with horror. Now that's a relatively rare idea in scripture. The idea of the hearer's ears tingling or quivering or vibrating because of the frightening news that came is, is uh, mentioned only maybe three times in scripture in the Old Testament. One of the uh, times that is a very profound time comes 500 years later when Manasseh was king in Israel and he was leading Judah into its many abominations. And the Lord spoke to him through his prophets, and the Lord said, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears it, both his ears shall tingle. A little bit later, he would say through the prophet Jeremiah the same basic thing concerning what was going to happen to Jerusalem and to the temple because they were to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC and Jeremiah would witness this great disaster and the ears of all, even those who weren't of Israel, would tingle as they heard of the tragedy. But as, as we look at this particular event, what news could be so horrible as to make people's ears tingle or quiver as the news came to them? What would cause such fright? Would it be the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas? Probably not. I think many in Israel thought these guys were going to drop dead one of these days because they're acting so horribly and yet claiming to be priests of God. Would it be Eli's ignominious death? We haven't seen, read about it yet, but most of you know the account. He dies rather tragically. Possibly, possibly that would be part of it. But I think the main thing would be, of course, when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines. I mean, that would be like the shockwave of an atomic weapon flying across the landscape, flattening everything. The Ark of the Covenant, the great symbol of Israel and of its God, has been lost to the pagan Philistines. How could this possibly be? It would be devastating news. And to hear that, on, in addition to that, that the great sanctuary here at Shiloh had also been destroyed. Not only was the Ark taken, but the sanctuary destroyed. How can this be? As the word would come, and we'll read about it later, God was writing Ichabod 
over Israel at that moment. The glory of the Lord has departed. In the case of the passage in 2 Kings 21 that I referred to a minute ago with Manasseh, and in the case of Jeremiah's words in the 19th chapter, the horrible news was even more devastating because the news at that time was that Jerusalem was destroyed, the city of David, the city of God, and not only that, the great temple of Solomon had been burned to the ground and totally leveled. How could this be? Israel was depending upon the survival of the temple of Solomon because it was where God dwelt. God couldn't possibly let such a magnificent building be destroyed no matter how apostate his people were. Oh, let me read from 2 Kings chapter 21, 2 Kings 21.10. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whomever, whoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. God gives us the story, the account of Israel, both to encourage us as to his daily care of his people and his divine intervention in the events of history, and to also help us to realize that unless we walk faithfully with him, he must bring judgment. He must bring the correction of the course uh, of his people, and this he would do for Israel. And the only thing, of course, that is ultimately sacred is the heart of the human being before God himself. No physical thing on this planet is sacred. No stone, no structure, no, no uh, ark of the covenant or anything else in and of itself is so sacred that it cannot be destroyed. The human heart is what is ultimately sacred before God. And this is what Israel was to, to learn, and this is the message God is trying to proclaim through his prophets to these people. And so he gives his word through Samuel. And God was giving a warning, even as he had already warned Eli himself with a prophet. You remember we read this before. God sent a prophet to Eli who gave the words already that now he has given in effect to Samuel also. So why does he give it to Samuel also? Since Eli has already heard it, why does he give it also through Samuel? I think the reason is spelled out to some extent in verse 13 where it says, For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. I think God was speaking to Samuel. He was telling Samuel, this is not the way to go. This man is your father figure. This man is your teacher. This is the man who's guiding you. But you must not follow in his steps in these ways. You must not allow sin to exist in the sanctuary. Although it was Eli's sons who had abandoned the Lord, not Eli himself. It was Eli's sons who had defamed the name of the Lord in the sanctuary. But Eli was held responsible because he had not 
truly rebuked them. Oh, he said something now and then, and we, we, we read about that. But it wasn't sufficient. It, it wasn't serious. It didn't have any consequences. So they continued in their ways, and he just basically washed his hands, you might say, and said, I can't do anything with these boys. And so he left it to God. Eli and Phineas earned their death sentence. In fact, they earned it threefold and possibly even more. Let me explain. First of all, if you go, and we won't turn to these passages, but in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 12, we read these words. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands before the Lord, that person shall die. Thus, contempt for the priesthood about, uh, uh, from men who are supposed to be priests themselves caused Hophni and Phinehas to be condemned to die. Secondly, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 and following, we read that an incorrigible, rebellious son was to be taken before the elders of the city and, and demonstrated about his vileness, and then he was to be taken out and stoned. And thirdly, we read in Leviticus 24, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And Hophni and Phinehas were a walking blasphemy. Their very lives blasphemed the name of the Lord as they did the things that we read about already here in the first part of this book of 1 Samuel. So at least for three reasons that the death sentence rested on their shoulders. God knew, of course, because of his foreknowledge that nothing would bring these two men to repentance. They had totally sold out to the evil one as consciously as if they had been Faust and were worthy of death. No sacrifice or offering, therefore, was going to atone for Hophni and Phinehas because God had already passed the sentence of death. They were beyond salvation, we might say, even as the world was in the days of Noah and God gave them over to destruction because they were irredeemable. Let's read on in the 15th, 13th, third chapter of Samuel at verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel, and he said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here am I. And he said, What is the word that he has spoken to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide any, any hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him, and he said, It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. When the vision was completed and the theophany came to an end, Samuel, I believe, laid back down on his bed. And I think the words of God were still echoing in his ears because they were not words he wanted to hear. I don't think he slept much. Whatever night was left, whatever early morning hours were left, whatever darkness was left, because I think he was busy contemplating, how am I going to avoid telling Eli what I have just heard? Because God didn't say to him, you must go tell Eli this vision. When Samuel got up, he went about his business just as if nothing had happened. I don't think he was whistling a little tune, but he was out doing the things he was supposed to do. 
I think he was hoping that Eli would not question him, that Eli would just forget the whole thing. And maybe Eli wasn't awake enough to really know what was going on last night. You know, all these thoughts probably went through young Samuel's mind's mind. It appears that one of Samuel's jobs was opening the entrance to the tabernacle compound. Now, in the passage we read, we see the words doors, the word doors used in the passage. Because of this, some commentators believe that the t after the tabernacle was settled in Shiloh and became a relatively permanent fixture in Shiloh, that some of the tent-like features were, were altered and were replaced with more solid features. And that maybe the tent wall that stretched out around the compound was made into a solid wall and therefore had actual doors uh, for an entrance into the compound. But whether that was true or, or whether the scripture is just referring to the, the hanging fabric that was in the entranceway that had to be parted to be opened or, or not, Samuel went to open the compound for the, new, for the day's business and to allow people to come in and bring their sacrifices and, and worship as was common uh, each day. It was probably still very early in the morning. It was light, of course, but when Eli summoned Samuel to him, I'm sure that Samuel cringed when he heard Eli calling to him. Undoubtedly, I think as he approached Eli, he tried to look as nonchalant as possible in order to cover certainly what was in his heart, which was a foreboding, that this man that I've come to love, God has said that he and his family would face judgment. He certainly knew of the evil of Hophni and Phinehas, and, and this, this hurt him, and uh, and I think he hurt for Eli on, because of Eli's sons. And so it seems that without so much as a, good morning, how are you this morning, Samuel, that Eli jumped straight into the point of his calling Samuel before him. I think he sensed that Samuel might be reluctant to tell him. I, I don't think Samuel, uh, that Eli was so blind that he didn't, realized that maybe what was in the vision was not a good thing for him. And, and so he felt that Samuel might not be terribly willing to relate to him the whole vision. And so what Eli does in his passage is he uses his power of the priesthood to extract a complete account of the vision from this young man, Samuel. In the words of the commentator Ronald Youngblood, he swore an oath of imprecation calling down God's judgment on Samuel if the boy refused to tell him everything he knew. Sounds pretty harsh, but Eli wanted to know what God had said. Put yourselves, if you could, into the sandals of Samuel. This man is a, a man you love and care for. He's a man who's training you in the job that is becoming your job. He's a real father figure because the only other father in your life, of course, is your real father, but you only see him once a year for a couple of days and you hardly knew him before you were here in the tabernacle precinct because you were about three years old when you were first brought there and, and in effect abandoned by your mother and, and your father. And so his relationship to, to Eli was, was a very close one. And so I think it was both with fear and sorrow in his heart that Samuel relayed everything that God had revealed to him just hours before. I think Samuel was worried about how Eli would respond. And I think he was a bit surprised at how Eli actually did respond because Eli, we're told in the passage, acknowledged 
This vision is from Yahweh himself. And we discover that Eli submitted to the judgment that God had passed without even so much as a whimper or a complaint. I'm sure in some ways Samuel was relieved, but his heart also went out to this man. No matter how weak Eli had been as chief priest in Israel, he knew the Lord well enough to know that God was absolutely right and that it would be futile to attempt to resist him. And I think this is a mirror of what it will be like for all of us and for all men and women of the world when we stand before God. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne as, as true believers. We stand before Jesus and, and we will have no <laughs> excuse for anything. And, and even more so, the men and women of the world who have never know, come to know Christ, as they stand before the great white throne, they may think they're going to have lots of excuses and, and ways by which they're going to try to convince God that it was okay. I think they will be speechless. They will have not a word to utter because they will know in their hearts they're condemned. They will know in their hearts they were wrong. And as a result, it will be a very quiet time except for the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So in some ways, Eli represents this, not that he would stand before the great white throne because I believe as true servant of God, but he was a true servant who had failed God in a radical way. The prophecy that Samuel had received from the Lord did not come to pass right away. It wasn't like the next day this whole thing happened. And the reason it didn't happen right away is that Samuel had yet to mature into a man. He was still a youth, probably a teenager at this particular time, and, and he was not yet ready to assume the position of priest. He was not ready to become prophet, to become shofat in Israel. So God was giving him time to mature into the man that God had called him to be. We read in verse 19 that Samuel grew. And implied in that is that he matured into a man. And what we discover as we look at the life of this man, Samuel, is that he did not mature into just an ordinary man. He matured into a man who consciously and faithfully walked with God. It would be nice if that were ordinary men and women. Unfortunately, it doesn't even seem to be ordinary men and women inside the church to consciously, daily walk faithfully with God. We tend to be, do it in fits and starts, to be spasmodic, sometimes to do it unconsciously rather than consciously. The last words of verse 19 speak volumes to us. We read that the Lord implied, let none of his words fail. Let none of his words fail. The words translated fail actually are two Hebrew words that mean literally, did not let his words fall to the earth. Just go bloop, into the ground and, and die as it were. But rather, God empowered his words. Samuel was God's spokesman. He spoke on God's behalf. He was empowered by God, and his words which went out were the words of God, inspired by Yahweh himself, which went out to accomplish their purpose. This is the sign of a true prophet. It said none of his words were allowed by God to fail. None. The sign of a true prophet is 100% accuracy in the proclamation of the prophetic word. 100% accuracy. Where does that put Edgar Casey and Gene Dixon and all the others whose batting average is slightly better than that of Barry Bonds, maybe, uh, when it comes to uh, predictions? No, 100%. You have to bat 1,000 with God if you're the prophet of God. 
not $9.99, not $8.75, or even $3.50. You have to bat 1,000%, which is, of course, why Jonah was so upset <laughs> when God didn't wipe out Nineveh, as he had proclaimed. Well, God did, but Jonah wasn't around 150 years later when Nineveh fell, even though much of Israel was apostate at that particular time. The people throughout all Israel, and, and this is where you get the, the Dan up here to Beersheba in the south. Those are the traditional uh, limits of, uh, of the Israelite nation in terms of the center of their civilization. You remember we read about how Dan was made a part of Israel as the uh, tribe of Dan moved up here in the process we read about and established uh, themselves in the north. And it's a very beautiful area up there. If you ever get to Israel, one of the prettiest areas in all of Israel is the area around Dan. In fact, part of it's a national park. It's parts of one of the tributaries of the Jordan River rises right nearby there. And it's got trees and running water and lots of wildlife. It's, it's a very pretty area. Beersheba is the opposite. Well, not the opposite, but Beersheba is out on, in the open grasslands and it's much drier down there because it's in the Negev. So you have these two extremes, but they uh, encompass uh, Israel. And so all the people between those cities, which is just a figure of speech, it means all of the Israelites, wherever they lived, uh, recognized that Samuel was God's true spokesman. How did they recognize that? Because when they looked at him, his face glowed like Moses? No. Because everything he, he prophesied happened 100%. They knew, therefore, he was of God. Chapter 3, you may remember, began with this sad statement in the first chapter. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord, which was good, but notice the next sentence. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. That's how the third chapter began. But notice how the third chapter ends. It ends in a very different way. We discover the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Because the Lord revealed himself at Shiloh to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Rare vision and rare word. Now we have repeated visions and repeated word coming from the Lord through this man, Samuel. God has raised up a spokesman, a man who could be God's channel for reaching out to his errant people and proclaiming the truth. Obviously, God can do His will no matter how difficult it might seem to us, how difficult the situation might be, or how unlikely the people involved may appear. Think about it. In spite of the impatience of Elkanah in running ahead and marrying a second wife because his first wife was barren, in spite of that, God worked. In spite of the viciousness, viciousness of Penina, that second wife who, who railed against Hannah and pointed out how she had failed so horribly because she had borne no children. In spite of the distress of Hannah who, who was hurt by, by this accusation that she was childless and therefore worthless. And in spite of the weakness of Eli who could not even control his own two sons, God worked. In spite of all these people, God raised up a mighty prophet who would proclaim the word of God. And every one of those persons had a role to play in it. Negative in some cases, positive in other cases, but nevertheless, God was at work. And none of them could have known this. Elkanah probably not, didn't have a dream in his, in his mind that someday his son would be the great prophet and, and Shaphat in Israel. And uh, neither did Hannah until, of course, uh, God began to reveal it to her and Penina, of course, 
she had nothing but bad things to say. And of course, Eli himself was kind of hopeless for a while there. Samuel became Nabi. Nabi roughly translates prophet. It means God's spokesman. Notice how God revealed himself to Samuel. It says that God revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. Through the centuries, a few have witnessed a theophany as Samuel did and others that we have read about and yet will read about in the Old Testament. Others have heard the Lord speak audibly without seeing anything, but they are very few in number. But millions and tens of millions, God has revealed himself to them by his word. That is the primary means by which God reveals himself to you, to me, and to his people throughout all time. This is why we gather in studies like this, at least I hope that is why. It is why we go to church, hopefully, to hear the word of the Lord. It's why we study the word of God privately, that we might see him, that he might reveal himself to us, that we might learn of his nature more and more each day. This, of course, requires that we study his word and hear his word humbly and with open hearts. Many, of course, as you probably know, you can go to many schools and universities and they have literature of the Bible courses where you can go and study the Bible. But, of course, it's taught by an atheist at worst, an agnostic at best, and it's just treated as if it were Homer or, or you know, some other piece of literature. It's not looked upon as the divine word of an almighty God. That's why it's very important for us that we focus on it as exactly that. And we come to it with all humility because this is the spoken word of God. As scripture tells us that forever his word is settled in heaven. The word of, the God, of God expresses uh, his nature to us. And the more we study his word, the clearer we see him. These accounts in the scripture that we read reveal to us God's attitudes. We, we see his proclamations. We see his actions in every type of situation through thousands of years of time. How did God deal with Adam and Eve in the garden? How did God deal with Noah? How did God deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the kings of Israel? And how did God express himself through Jesus Christ, God incarnate? In all these situations, we, we have revealed to us the nature of God and his attributes. That's how we know God. Through his word, we can come to see and understand God the best that we possibly can in this flesh. We know, of course, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. So we know that the eyes of our minds today are, are fogged. <laughs> we, we, we've got uh, spiritual uh, cataracts, you might say. And we don't see God as clearly as we will one day when we pass through chilly Jordan, if you like, and, and walk with him forever in heaven. We will know him even as we are known. And so obviously our image, our understanding of, them will be, of him then will be far clearer. But we can know him now, whom to know is life eternal. And it's important that we focus on that knowledge. A lot of other things in our lives are important, but they are not nearly as important. It's very hard for us to get that priority straight, however, because everything comes in upon us, and you and I all know that, how we can be 
busy, quote, doing the work of the Lord, but be so busy doing the work that we don't see Him. And that we're not very good reflectors of Him because our mirrors are all smudged up with all the stuff we're trying to do. Let's read on in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp that all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp, and they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these, notice, plural, mighty, mighty Elohim gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of the covenant was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is not one of Israel's glorious hours. This is an hour which God had predicted through the unnamed prophet to Eli and then through Eli through Samuel. The hour of judgment would come because Israel was unrepentant and continuing to walk in the ways that would be manifested in this passage because they treat the Ark of the Covenant as if it was some kind of a talisman, a good luck charm. We'll, we'll take this out and everything will be okay not realizing that the power of the Lord dwelt in the hearts of his believers. And if they went forth in the faith of God, he was as much there with them as he was when he was in the ark, as far as battle was concerned. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. That is, the word of the Lord through Samuel came to all Israel. We must read that in there. It isn't just the word of Samuel. It's the word of the Lord through Samuel. That is why, from my perspective, it is so important that whenever, the, whenever there's a Sunday school lesson or whenever there's a sermon being preached, that it be preached out of the Word of God because it's the Word of God that changes lives, not the many words that I speak or a preacher speaks. The many words don't change lives. It's God's Word that changes lives. His Word is a sharp two-edged sword. The rest, you know, human words are just blunt. They just bounce off. That's why I believe it's so important that the Word be the focus of every service. However, 
what we discover in this passage is that all Israel was not listening to the word of the Lord through Samuel. All of Israel was not obedient to the word of the Lord through Israel. What that tells us is that to hear the word of the Lord but not to obey is to damn oneself just as Israel damned themselves here in this moment of time because we've only read a part of what will happen. The worst is yet to come. James tells us, and you and I know it so well, that to be a hearer of the word and not a doer is to delude ourselves. And it's very possible for us to do that, to lull ourselves into self-righteous complacency. Well, I'm a Christian and I'm trying to do my best and, you know, we'll let the chips fall where they may. We don't want the chips falling where they may. Disaster could lie around the corner as it did for Israel. Israel uh, didn't realize when they faced the Philistines what calamity was about to happen to them. Oh yes, the enemy was coming and an army had to be fought, but they had done that many times before and, and they thought they were going out in the name of the Lord, but as you read through this passage, you discover they weren't talking to the Lord at all. They were talking amongst themselves and they were making their own decisions and, and they were thinking of God as if he were some kind of, uh, of an icon that they could drag along and this icon will give them victory rather than realizing he has to be alive in their hearts and their faith has to be committed to him. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And later in the same book of John, he says, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. You are my friends if you do what I command. How do we know what he commands? Through the word. And that's what makes it so key and so essential for us and, of course, for Israel. And as we look at Israel, we hope that we do not see in Israel a mirror of ourselves uh, at this moment of time. And if we do, we need, of course, to change that. We will stop at this point and uh, pick up next week.